0: church. Hope you all had wonderful Thanksgiving, and looks like many of us are still recovering from Thanksgiving, maybe laid up in bed, I'm not sure, but glad you guys made it uh, this morning, and uh, again, it's my honor and privilege to share with you God's word today. We're continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians uh, titled, Who Are We?, Uh, We're going to be jumping in in the middle of chapter 2. I invite you, if you're able, to stand now for the reading of God's Word. This is Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we come now to your word that you might speak to us, that you might touch our hearts, transform our minds, that we might leave here different because we encountered you living God. God, I pray for myself and for each person in this room that we would have eyes to hear, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. At the conclusion of World War II, uh, the Allied forces divided up what was once Nazi Germany into two parts— The eastern part of the country was given to the Soviet Union and the western part of the country went to the United States and Great Britain. However, although the capital city of Berlin was located fully on the Soviet Union side, the city itself was likewise partitioned into East and West Berlin. So a little European history for you guys in case you slept through that class. In 1961, the socialist East Germans recognized a big problem that was happening. Uh, see, everybody wanted to get out of East Germany. Um, there was a massive deportation taking place. East Germans were flooding over the border of West Germany. And in order to stop the bleeding of constant defection, the East Germans decided to build a wall. They built a concrete wall around the city of West Berlin. And the idea here was to contain these West Berlin people so they could no longer defect into West Germany. And the wall stood there as a constant reminder of this once unified and prosperous nation that was divided at its core. Our text this morning speaks about a wall, a wall that has existed in the people of God for thousands of years. A wall that tore the people of God apart and prevented unity and communion in the body of Christ. The people of Berlin experienced this, and uh, you guys know the rest of the story. On November 9th, 1989, shortly after President Reagan's famous speech, the East German Communist Party announced that the citizens of East Germany were now free to cross the border. And what is said, was reported, is that that very night, the crowd swarmed the wall. They were flooding over the wall, and most of them simply climbed into freedom, but few of them actually brought hammers and picks. And they came and they began to chip away at the wall itself. You see, they were so wounded and hurt, by this wall, that they felt like not just did it need, that the government need to announce that freedom was at hand, they actually needed to destroy the symbol. The wall needed to come down. Paul is speaking about, here in this text, about a wall that needs to come down. And church, I, as we begin this sermon, I, I fear that this very same wall that Paul is referencing is slowly and subtly being rebuilt in the church today, and it's time for us to begin to look at that wall and tear it down once again. I want to caution you as we dive into the text this morning that this sermon may be hard for some of us to digest, and the reason is is because of the corporate nature of what is being said here. In the previous paragraph that Daniel preached about last week, Paul was talking about our, our individual identity in Christ, how that's been transformed by what Jesus has done. But Paul here begins to focus more on our corporate identity, on the corporate transformation that has taken place, on how the church as a whole, as a collective body, has been transformed and is being transformed in Christ. Who are we as a church but in America, particularly white America, this concept is often very hard for us to comprehend. We are so prone to read our Bibles through our Western individualistic lens, aren't we? And our English Bibles actually don't help this because they're, they translate very poorly from Greek. I heard... Uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, a local theologian, talked about this one time. He said he began to read the Bible in a whole new light when he began to realize that most of the yous in the Bible are actually y'alls. That's how someone from North Carolina breaks it down. The idea here is that we miss the fact that so much of what is being written in the Bible is not written to us individually, but it's written to a community, to a group of people. And so as we begin this morning, I invite you to listen for God's message to us The church in Durham, and not to just you, the Durhamite. Now as we begin to unpack this text, I want to give you an outline of where Paul is going this morning. Three points he's going to make. First, life without the wall. Excuse me, life with the wall. Secondly, the wall came tumbling down. And then third, life after the wall. Life with the wall, and this wall coming down And then thirdly, life after the wall. So let's begin. Uh, I was the second born in my family, uh, which means I inevitably idolized my older brother. I thought he was the coolest. Uh, I don't think so anymore, but I did as a little child. And therefore, when I was a child, I so wanted he and his friends to accept me. I deeply longed for their approval. And one of the ways that I would try to earn their approval is that when they would come over and spend the night, uh, the next day after they'd played hard and stayed up late, I would I would come down while they were still sleeping, kind of spread out across the playroom floor, and I would bring eggs and bacon that I had just cooked, and I, and I would wake them up to the smell of hot breakfast and they loved it. it was it, Obviously, it was wonderful. They, they would, they would kind of slowly wake themselves up and have this wonderful feast, and just for a moment, during breakfast, I was one of the guys. They let me be a part of their little gang, but unfortunately, shortly after breakfast, when it was time to play video games or basketball, I was resigned to go back upstairs and hang out with mom, because I wasn't really one of the gang. You know, I wasn't really a part of their group. I was always a tier below, always on the outside looking in. It wasn't anything that I had done, I just wasn't old enough to be a part of their social club. We all know what that feels like, don't we? We know what it feels like to be excluded. It hurts, it hurts bad. And Paul begins this section of the letter by reminding the Ephesians of a time when they were excluded. Excluded for reasons that were completely beyond their control. A little context here in what Paul is saying. The Ephesian church that Paul is writing to is made up almost entirely of Gentiles. So, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this term, the title Gentile simply means non Jew, someone who was not related to Abraham, not of the bloodline of Abraham. This was an ethnic distinction. And Paul goes to great lengths here to remind the Ephesians of the reality of the exclusion that they had experienced. Listen to verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now it's subtle here, but what we see is not far from a racial slur. The Jews had actually come up with a derogatory name for everyone that was not a part of their exclusive ethnic club. They called them the uncircumcision, those other people, those who are not with us. And then in in verse 12, Paul pours it on thick. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's message here is clear you Gentiles, you were nothing. You were on the outside looking in by no fault of your own. You were excluded from the full benefits of the family of God. There's a big wall that kept you out. And if the Gentiles were slow to understand this, the temple itself would have driven home this point. So if you've ever seen a picture of the temple in Israel, it was built in concentric squares, if you will, kind of like those Russian dolls that you may have played with before. So you had the outermost courts, and that's where the Gentiles were allowed to come. And then inside that, you had the court of women. So women were allowed to go one step further. And then inside that, you had the court of Israel. And then in the very inside, you had the Holy of Holies. That's where only one man, the high priest, was allowed to go. And so you see this picture of these walls that are built up that are preventing people from experiencing the deep riches of that community, only one man actually experienced the full riches, but you've got these walls that reminded the Gentiles, hey, you're not really a part of this group. You're not really in. And so Paul is reminding them of that. His point's clear, but the million-dollar question is, why does Paul feel the need to remind them of this reality? Why does he need to paint this picture of of the dark history of the Gentiles? And the answer is that Paul knows that only by connecting with the hurt of exclusion will the Ephesians be able to understand and embrace this new corporate identity that Paul is about to reveal to them. They need to taste again what it felt like to be left out. Daniel and I have some friends who experienced uh, one of the most tragic things that can happen uh, to a couple a few years ago. Their three-year-old son died in his sleep. Uh, I honestly cannot imagine the agony that one would feel as a parent to experience something like that. Uh, and obviously, this is the kind of thing that you never get over, but one of the things that this couple does every year in order to seek to live in the midst of great pain is they go to a weekend to be with other parents that have lost children. And I remember the husband sharing this past year that he hates going. Every, every year when he's, it's time to go, he just can't even fathom going to this thing again, because it's so hard to remember and reflect on what's happened. But then he and his wife, whenever they get back, they they reflect on the fact that that was the most important year, important weekend of their year. And the reason why is because just for a few days, they actually got to spend some time with somebody who actually understood the depth of their pain. Someone who not just conceptually, but experientially knew what it was like to lose a child. Paul is pushing here that we need to remember what it's like to be excluded. He's telling the Ephesians, you have to feel that experience, what it's like to be excluded, in order for your heart to be ready for this new corporate identity that I'm about to reveal. I don't know what your story is, but I know for me, it's very easy for me to forget when I was excluded from the family of God. Some of you, I know, may have never known a time where you didn't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But I don't care what your story is, we as Christians, we have to allow ourselves to go there to remember and reflect on what life is like apart from Christ, to be excluded from this beautiful community and family that God has offered us. We have to feel that. Only then is our hearts ready for this new identity that Paul is about to make plain for us. We need to feel the plane of exclusion so that we can begin to walk into our identity in Christ. Which brings us to our second point, the walls came tumbling down. Much like in verse 4 that Daniel referenced last week, here in verse 13 we have a dramatic shift in the text that hinges on two little words. Paul says, but now. Paul declares that Gentiles, your identity was not good. The situation was bad. You were outsiders, misfits, rejects, but now. But now there is a new identity for you as a group of people. And what's that new corporate identity? Look at verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near. The new corporate identity is nearness for all. That's what's true now of the church of jesus christ no longer does anyone have special access to god the playing field has been leveled and we're now on the same page verse 18 one of my favorite verses in the whole bible says for through him through jesus we both jew and gentile have access in one spirit to the father when the walls came down They created a new society called the church where everyone has equal access to God. How is that possible? How did these walls that had been up for so long come down? Let's keep reading verse 13. By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How was the nearness created? Jesus Christ, by his blood, in his flesh, tore down the dividing wall. We didn't tear it down, he tore it down. And this is huge, guys. This is the the, the major point of of this text that what, what Christ has done, he did this by, verse 15, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The law, the temple, And the sacrifices, these were all temporary measures that God put in place to deal with the sinfulness of his people. They were put in place until the true righteous one, the one who represented all Israel, would come and fulfill the law completely and thereby nullify the old old system. Therefore, Jesus, living the perfect life, came and fulfilled the requirements of the law. He did what we could not do. He was perfect. And not only that, he satisfied the penalty of the law, on the cross, he died to satisfy the penalty for our sins, our unfaithfulness. Christ dealt with that in his flesh. Church, remember how the temple, it was this constant reminder to the Gentiles that they were on the outside looking in. Matthew 25 verses 51 says that the moment Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the curtain that separated the holy of holies where the, the glory of God dwelled was ripped in half by God. Do you understand what God was saying there? He's saying we now all have access. No longer is there this hierarchy, these tears. He ripped the curtain and said, you all can be with me, with God. That's what Christ did. Now it's easy for us to begin to interpret this individually because that's what we like to do in the West. We hear this and we read, Paul is saying, I once was far off and now I'm near, go me. This is great. And although that's true, that's not really the point that Paul's making here. Paul gives us two metaphors here to to help prevent us from going to that place of individualism, the new man metaphor and the citizenship metaphor. I want to unpack these for you guys so that you can understand Paul's point here. First, this idea of the new man, one new man. What Paul is saying here is that prior to the work of Christ, there existed two separate communities that were worshiping God. The Gentile community worshiped God, and then on the other side, the Jewish community worshiped God. And because of the Jewish law, they were forbidden to do that together. They were separated However, the dramatic shift of verse 15 is not simply that they now have the option to worship together. It's so much stronger than that. The shift in verse 15 is that no longer does true worship happen apart from togetherness. Did you hear that, church? Another way to state this is that the gospel that is not all-inclusive is no gospel at all. Paul is saying that our reconciliation to God by nature has a horizontal component— verse 16, that Jesus might reconcile us both to God in one body. This reconciliation takes place in the context of unity, of community. It's where it happens. In Christ, there's no longer room for division. In Christ, we are now one man, not two. Secondly, aliens versus citizens. This is Paul pushing it further. There's all kinds of debate in the political sphere about whether or not we in this country should be receiving Syrian refugees into this country. I'm not about to enter into that debate here from the pulpit, but I just want to point out that the process of becoming a citizen is a huge deal. I've heard of refugees describing the day when they are given their citizenship and that U.S. passport as the best day of their life because their identity dramatically changes in that day. They go from being a second-class citizen, maybe even an unwanted guest, if we're honest, to an equal rights member of society. In Christ, we all become citizens, not visitors, not guests, but residents. And we all have equal access to the rights and privileges of the family of God. Church, I want to try to make this plain for us. Uh, God is drawing a people to himself, not a person. We are reconciled together in the context of community. God's design is to not create a bunch of wonderful individuals, but a glorious, gospel-saturated community. A group of men and women whose lives are deeply entrenched in one another's, growing together towards wholeness. Church, we cannot, we cannot become like Christ apart from each other. Would you, I know we don't do this often, but would you turn to your neighbor and say, I need you? Turn to your neighbor. We can work on that. We'll get better at that. <laughs> I need you. Thank you. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with a friend of mine. Uh, it was not my first meeting, but I had forgotten how beautiful these meetings are. Um, and as I went, I just stood in awe of what I was witnessing. About 30 men, as a men's only meeting, who sat around and spilled their guts for about an hour, listening to each other, looking each other in the eye, eager to hear what the other had to say. You could see it in their eyes, and you could watch it from their embrace after the meeting. They truly loved one another. And diversity like you could not believe in this room. Men in their 20s all the way up to men in their 60s. Men who clearly had PhDs and men who likely didn't finish high school. Men who came to the meeting in a BMW and men who caught the city bus. Black, white, Asian were the ethnicities that were present at this meeting. Married, married single, divorced. These men should not like each other, right? They have no reason to be together, much less hang out once a week and talk about their deepest, darkest secrets. But they do. Every week they gather and talk about their lives and what's going on. And the question that haunted me as I left is what's the difference between them and us? Because there was all kinds of church going on in that place. So much that we could learn from them. What's the difference between them and us? The difference is they have a keen awareness of the fact that they need one another. And when deep down you know that you need someone else, it really doesn't matter what they look like or where they came from. Amen? Church, our reconciliation is meant to happen together. We have a new corporate identity. We are one whether we like it or not. So what would that look like if we began to live it out? I think it would not be much different from what's happening inside those four walls of AA. We would begin to share the depths of our brokenness with one another, regardless of what the other person looks like or where they came from. We would lock arms and do life together. I think this Lila Watson quote should speak volumes to us about the way we should enter this building. She says, if you came here to help me, then you're wasting your time. But if you're here because your liberation is bound up in mine, then let's begin. That's the picture of the church, a people that profoundly understands that their redemption is bound up in one another. We need each other. Which leads us to our final point this morning, life after the wall. Paul's reminded us of how bad it used to be. He reminds us of what Christ has done to bring about this new corporate identity, and he's painted a picture of what this identity looks like. But as I mentioned in the introduction, I fear the church has begun to rebuild some of those walls, the walls that hinder us from living out this reality. And I wanna end by addressing three walls that if allowed to stand, are deadly threats to this corporate identity that we have in Christ. Those three walls are nationalism, racism, and classism. Now there's a bunch, but I just wanna address these three. Start with nationalism. Church, hear me. I'm not opposed to patriotism, and there's nothing wrong with loving your country. But when that ideology begins to infiltrate its way into the church, we've got a wall being built. Paul's message is loud and clear that in Christ there's no longer a special nation. There's now a special people that are united based on faith in Christ, not in what country you were born And as a result, there will never be an American flag on this stage. There will never be an American flag on this stage. Because contrary to popular belief, God's chosen nation is not America. God's chosen people is his church, period. Church, the nations are present in the triangle. And I hope that we can be a church that is all-inclusive to all people groups. I hope that an Iranian can walk in these doors and feel loved and embraced and thank God that that Iranian won't have to stare at an American flag throughout this whole service. Amen? Church, we're adding bricks to that dividing wall every time we allow nationalism to be wed with Christianity. We've got to tear down that wall. Racism. This almost goes without saying right now, but our country is in disarray because of all the racial tension that surrounds us. And if we as a church think we're immune to that, we have lost our minds. Every single one of us deals with racism. We are all racist. Me and JR, who normally sits right there, are racist. It's deeply ingrained in us. And until we begin to acknowledge that and look racism in the face and call it what it is, we don't stand a chance of maintaining this corporate identity that Paul is placing before us. Part of the problem here, I'm gonna point at us white folks, is that we in the majority culture are ignorant of our culture. And we think that the way we do things is just the right way, and not our cultural way or our cultural preference. The evidence of this is that I think most of us white people honestly believe that the way we do church here at Christ Central is simply the way the Bible ordains for us to do church and are completely unaware of the cultural and not biblical norms that are present each and every week at Christ Central. There are a lot of them. I challenge each of you white people to talk to some of our non-white people about how they, do, they have historically done church and how it's different from the way we do church I think you'll be amazed at how much difference is purely cultural rather than biblical. Church, we've got to become ethnically educated in order to recognize this wall so that we can tear it down. We've got to learn each other's culture. We've got to honor each other's culture so that we can become this one new man in the place of two. Lastly comes the threat of classism. Durham is in this very interesting space right now, where it's growing in leaps and bounds, and almost all the new residents of Durham don't reflect the average medium income of historic Durham. That's that's just a fact. I'm I'm not making a judgment there. The evidence of this is in this neighborhood right behind us over here. A few months ago, a developer out of Texas bought the whole neighborhood, and immediately raised the rent by $200. As a result, almost all the residents are now looking for a new place to live. Okay? Now that's just economic climate change. It's happening. It's not news to any of us. But the important thing for us as the church is that in the midst of all this change, that we don't succumb to the subtle but deadly lure of classism. That we not begin to require people to dress a certain way or drive a certain car or tie a certain amount to be fully incorporated into our church family. See, our culture says, it's structured in a way that says, if you are poor, you have no voice. If you don't have wealth, I don't want to hear it. Your thoughts and opinions don't matter. The greatest danger for us as a church church, is that we begin to believe that, that we believe the only people that have voices are those that have wealth and status. We need to empower and listen to one another regardless of our socioeconomic status got to tear down that wall. Church, as we prepare to leave this morning, I want to leave us with this reminder of this warning that Paul is giving us. The walls have been, they've been torn down, it's already happened, but in our brokenness, we're prone to build them back up because we love what's comfortable, what's familiar. We love doing life with people that are like us, it's hard and it's messy and it's uncomfortable to do it otherwise. But The point of Paul's message is that with this new community that's being built, it's a community without walls. There's no such thing as a church divided. If you desire to be a part of this thing called the church, you must be committed to reconciling with one another as we reconcile with God. Paul's final metas- metaphor is, our, is a picture that I want us to take home with us. Verse 19, Paul talks of a new building. And the idea here is it's one building. It's not a campus. It's not a city. It's one building. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets is the foundation. We, God's people, are the bricks, We're being cemented together, interwoven and interlocked to form this magnificent holy temple. And the beauty of the building is that when it's built properly, it becomes a building fit for a king. Verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Church, when we begin to tear down these dividing walls and live out of this new corporate identity, we become a place that's fit for God himself. What verse 22 is saying is that God delights, he delights to dwell in a community like that. So would we begin to be that community so that God would choose and delight to dwell with us and that this church would have a massive impact on this city and throughout the world, amen? Let's pray. God, we are so far from this reality. We are so far from living this out. There are so many walls that exist inside this building because we're broken sinful people and we like what's comfortable, we like what's easy and safe. But you've told us that in order for us to grow in relationship with you, we gotta grow together. We've got to tear down the walls. So God, I pray that you would expose those walls in our hearts because they are so prevalent and that we would be courageous enough to bring our picks and our hammers and begin to chip away at these walls that prevent us from doing life together. God, I pray that for this church and for every church in this city, God, that we would become one new man in the place of two, fellow citizens of the family of God. God, would you make that a reality? In Jesus' name, amen. Church, here we come to the table, and this is the place where it is a reality. Here at the table... It's a, it's a level playing field. Everybody's welcome. I don't care what you look like, where you've been. If you're a child of God, you are welcome at this table. This is the great unifier. We share a meal together. If you're new here, we do this every week, and this is a, this is a gift that God gives us. He invites us here, and we fellowship with him and with one another. If you're not a Christian, then we are so glad you're here I hope that you feel welcomed. My goodness, I hope that that is true of you. Uh, that no matter where you've come from or where you've been, that you feel welcomed here. Um, if, the, if you are new here and you're not a Christian, we hope that you keep coming back, but please don't feel any need to pretend. This is a table where Jesus dines with those who are his, his children. Um, and if you're still wrestling with what's been said, uh, you're welcome to stay at your seat. If you want to come forward, if you just motion like this, we'd love to pray for you, but you don't have to pretend here. You can be who you are. You're still welcome uh, and you can please keep coming back. But for those of us who are uh, child of, children of the King, we come here and we dine and we fellowship with God and with one another. It's a beautiful gift, a reminder of the unity that is ours in Christ. The way we do this at Christ Central is we have red wine and white grape juice. We have gluten-free bread as well. The ushers are going to invite you down row by row. If you have children in nursery or children's church, you're welcome to get them. We'd love to pray for them. I'm going to pray now for this meal. And uh, as I pray, I'd ask that those who are assisting in the elements would come forward, and then the ushers will instruct you from there. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come forward that we would taste the unity that is ours in, in your son Jesus that we would experience the common bond that comes from us all being members of your family, one big family, messy, broken, but seeking to love each other and grow together. I pray that you would minister to us here this morning at your table, and that we would leave here having connected with you and connected with each other. I pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.